Welcome to Tower Talks with Inside Towers, the wireless infrastructure industries podcast. And now for your weekly recap, a timely review of this week's top headlines and takeaways. Here's your host. Welcome to Inside Towers Week in Review. I'm Leslie Stimson, Inside Towers Washington Bureau Chief. With me are John Celentano, our business editor, and Jay Sharp Smith, our technology editor. This episode is sponsored by Inside Towers Intelligence, a quarterly market report that dives deep into the wireless infrastructure ecosystem. It looks at market trends, capital expenditures, relevant M&A transactions, and more. Intelligence is designed for managers, marketers, and investors. Our second quarterly report is available this week. An annual subscription also includes an exclusive briefing and online support. For more information or to subscribe, visit InsideTowers.com intelligence. Our first story of the week is about President Biden's delay in selecting a permanent FCC chair, plus another Democrat to bring the agency up to the uh, 5-3 complement. Blair Levin spoke about that this week. He was chief of staff for Chairman Reed Hunt in the 1990s. He also oversaw the development of the FCC's national broadband plan. He's now a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a policy analyst for New Street Research. He wrote in July that one of the people on the list, a longtime consumer advocate, Gigi Sohn, has actually fallen off the list. And he said that while interim chair Rosenworcel continues to have significant Senate support, Her inability to obtain the nomination after more than six months suggests to us that there is some internal White House opposition. But then he also says there's no clear front runner for replacing her. So we'll have to see how that works out. I was listening to a webinar this week where um, a former FCC commissioner, Robert McDowell, said that basically not having that majority has meant that the agency has pretty much lost a year's worth of critical rules uh, work that it could have done otherwise if, he had, if it had, had had a majority. And this brings us to another story um, from J. Sharp Smith about uh, broadband automated license plate readers. Thank you, Leslie. Uh, this story really highlights the, uh, really the emergence of uh, artificial intelligence in, uh, in our day-to-day lives. Uh, in the past, you could count on a traffic camera to take a fuzzy picture and then send you a, uh, a letter in the mail saying that you owe them uh, $25 or $100 for, uh, for speeding. These cameras have been trained to take a sharp picture and actually take a, a short video of a, a car that is uh, maybe wanted for a crime or uh, that it's been stolen. And the, uh, the police get a, an immediate uh, email that has the video, the make of the car, the direction that it's going, its location, and uh, everything that they would need to know to go and, uh, and apprehend uh, this, uh, whoever's driving this car. And it's uh, it's meant for uh, it's meant for crime uh, reduction 
not traffic work. So hopefully it will not uh, have the, uh, the kickback that, that the, uh, the traffic cameras did. But I think the, the most interesting thing about this is that we really are seeing uh, cameras being able to do very intelligent things. And uh, if you uh, watch the, uh, the US Open, uh, they don't have lines, uh, uh, people calling the lines anymore. That's done with, uh, with a camera that's been uh, powered with AI. And uh, so uh, it's situations where you can, uh, you can use AI and actually do it much better than you could have ever done it with a person. And um, it's, AI is not something of the future. It's part of our lives right now. Interesting. And then you uh, had a story about the ongoing chip shortage. Yeah, you know, I kind of wondered when we when we had the big chip shortage and and uh, the the levers of government began to uh, put money more money into uh, into chip production and the companies began to uh, increase all their production that um, that the reasons that there was a chip shortage would would uh, would go away and uh, and all the increased by the time that 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 uh, that the the reason for the chip shortage had gone away um, we'd already doubled or tripled our our capacity to uh, to make chips so it's uh you know it's a kind of one of those things where uh, uh, manufacturing doesn't doesn't turn on a dime and uh, so I, I'm not surprised that, uh, uh, that they're predicting a, uh, uh, you know, sort of a, an overage in, uh, in manufacturing by, uh, uh, in the relatively uh, not too distant future that we'll have, uh, we'll have uh, more chips than we need. But, uh, you know, you never know about these things. Uh, you know, we may end up with, uh, a lot more uh, needs for 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 chips by that time. So, I don't know. I think it, more chips is good chips. I hear you on that, John. Tell us about intelligence. Your next report is out this week. Yes. <clears throat> Excuse me. Thank you, Leslie. Yes, we're very pleased to uh, announce that our second quarter 2021 issue of Intelligence uh, was released this week, and we encourage. Um, uh, readers and subscribers to uh, take a look. It's uh, uh, got a lot of good information. Our lead article uh, that would be of interest to anybody in the wireless infrastructure business is entitled Inside the Tower Business, where we look at key aspects of the tower business business model, along with comparisons between uh, North American and international markets. You know, Tower owners and operators and their investors really believe that the tower business is the best business in the world. And if you think about the tower business model, you know, they build a tower with capacity for multiple tenants, keep maintenance low on a passive structure, sign up new tenants to long-term leases that add monthly revenues and profits, and, you know, buy, build and buy more towers and then repeat. And, you know, this is a little bit simplifying the, 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 the whole model, but you get the idea. The tower business model is very attractive financially. More importantly, towers are at the nexus of new 5G deployments worldwide. 
Most of the initial deployments involved low band and mid band frequencies to achieve wide area population coverage for macro cells on towers. This means the demand for space on towers likely will remain at a high level over the next five to seven years. Our second article uh, talks about a DISH network. Uh, DISH is establishing itself as a fourth US national mobile network operator. And in the process, it's entering in a mature market and competing with some deep, deep pocketed incumbent mobile network operators, uh, relying on a new open RAN wireless network architecture and a differentiated business model. DISH is confident in its plans and prides itself in being the disruptor as it was when it entered the pay TV business. The article is titled DISH Network, a strategic analysis, uh, and it does a deep dive into the company's opportunities and challenges as it stands on the threshold of launching a Greenfield 5G open RAN network. The issue also includes updates to our proprietary wireless infrastructure index uh, with current numbers, along with notable tower transactions that have taken place in the quarter. Plus, we added some color on what goes into compiling the index and how to interpret it. This issue also features contributions from four knowledgeable, highly regarded individuals. Mike Demita of Tower Capital Advisors in our M&A advisory piece talks about how the wireless infrastructure business has become a seller's market. Top rank Wall Street analyst Colby Sinusel of Cowan shares his views on trends and outlook for towers, small cells and data centers in our investor perspective piece. In the DC Watch section, Rod Carter and Mike Long, telecom attorneys with Hush Blackwell discuss the regulatory tools that are, will be available in the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. A jam-packed issue for sure, with lots of actionable market intelligence and analysis. And as you mentioned, Leslie, at the outset, anybody interested in learning more can go to the website insidetowers.com slash intelligence for details. Thank you, John. The uh, Competitive Carriers Association had their convention this week. Um, I covered a, an executive panel that opened the show. The um, uh, Many of them talked about you know, handset shortages, but what struck me was uh, what they did for their customers when the pandemic got really bad in the beginning. And they, they were also discussing about the challenges they're still having because of the pandemic. Um, GCI Chief Customer Experience Officer Maureen Moore uh, said that Developing an e-commerce platform is a challenge if you're a small or medium carrier, because she said it's not scalable. She said the effort we have to put into a platform like that is just like the big carriers, but their pockets are deeper. We are always scrambling to figure out how to create an e-commerce experience that customers expect that doesn't bankrupt us to provide. So it's an ongoing challenge. Many of the people on the panel discussed how they worked with school systems in their areas. One gentleman from Insight Cellcom uh, said not only that, but um, they had a lot of past due accounts in the beginning. Eventually many of that smoothed out and they only had to write off a small portion of what had ballooned to over $800,000 in past due accounts. Many of them also offered curbside service for their customers. Union Wireless um, executive 
Eric Woody said, we put Wi-Fi in parking lots to serve those who didn't have a good broadband experience at home. His company worked with about 15 school districts. Cellular One president and CEO Jonathan Foxman said his company had to close some of their retail locations at the beginning of the pandemic. Eventually, those reopened. He said, for customers in special circumstances, we waived invoices. So it was um, it was interesting to hear their solutions for what was going on during the pandemic. And then uh, I covered another discussion between WIA president and CEO Jonathan Adelstein and former his colleague on the commission, actually, uh, former FCC commissioner Robert McDowell, who is now a partner at the Cooley Law Firm. They were talking about, you know, when that $65 billion in available broadband deployment grants could actually get to the companies that hope to use them to deploy broadband. And they were basically, McDowell said, a lot of things in the House are gumming up the works right now. Um, there's uh, the Democrats are not in agreement on the uh, the spending package, $3.5 trillion spending package, plus there's other large pieces of legislation that they're trying to get squared away, including the budget. The deadline is next week, but um, they'll just do a continuing resolution. I can't think of a year where there wasn't at least one or two continuing resolutions. But he said um, what's going on in the House right now is there a lot of brinksmanship occurring by different factions of the party, he called it a big stew, creating a tremendous amount of uncertainty. His best guess for when the money, the broadband deployment money might be available sometime next year. He was saying lobbyists he has spoken with don't believe the situation will be resolved until Thanksgiving, meaning the vote, right, on the uh, spending package and on the infrastructure bill. And then NTIA has to figure out how to distribute the money. They give it to the states to finally be distributed to the telecoms. And Adelstein was saying, you know, NTIA can change how it all gets distributed. Um, he hopes it won't, but he was encouraging people who watch the webinar to stay in touch with their federal and state legislators and get to know their governors, too, because he said, you know, if we have to relitigate all this, that's an expensive undertaking. Um, broadband availability maps is a big point too. McDowell is pointing out, you know, at some point it has to be pencils down and they've got to go with, you know, with what they've got. Adelstein, he agreed with McDowell that if the infrastructure bill is enacted by Thanksgiving and if the maps are done by the first quarter of 2022, then NTIA gets it together to figure out how to distribute the money we're definitely talking 2022 first quarter at the earliest. He cautioned it could be later. And Sharp, you're going to round us out with a story on millimeter wave. Yes, thanks. Thank you, Leslie. Uh, uh, this article started off with uh, uh, with a, uh, a report from Open Signal on uh, the uh, the data that's being consumed over uh, 5G millimeter waves. And uh, uh, at the outset, they, they explained that most of the data that's being consumed right now is, uh, is 
over 4G systems. Uh, I'd say it's uh, about 90.7% uh, of the mobile data is on 4G and only a little less than 10% is on 5G networks. Uh, but that's enough uh, of a sampling to, uh, for them to extrapolate that uh, the millimeter 5G uh, uh, users are consuming about 4.5 times the data compared to uh, 4G uh, and uh, 2.4 times more than, the, uh, than other types of uh, 5G on the sub six gigahertz uh, spectrum band. So um, it's, uh, uh, it's obviously, it's, uh, it's a sea change as far as you know, capacity is concerned. And you know, I looked at that and I thought, I'd, I'd been seeing, as we all have, the uh, uh, different companies uh, talking about the, the, the record speeds that they're, that they're uh, developing, most of them in the, uh, the lab, some of them in the real world. Uh, most recent report uh, of a quote unquote record uh, came from Ericsson uh, from their system in Vietnam. Uh, and uh, the, uh, they, were, they reported 4.7 uh, gigahertz per second. Uh, which is about 40 times uh, faster than 5, 4G and two times faster than available 5G speed. They used uh, 800 megahertz of, uh, of spectrum, and that's about all the detail they gave on that. But uh, if you look over the past year, um, the fact that uh, what you see is you see a lot of, uh, of similarities in these, in these uh, records as a uh, uh, people call them. A lot of them are using the Qualcomm Snapdragon uh, semiconductors, and uh, that keeps popping up. Uh, the fact that they're that they're uh, uh, they're using 800 megahertz of spectrum is a uh, is another thing that that pops up. Um, carrier aggregation is very important. Uh, if you look at the very first uh, one record that was set by uh, Ericsson in uh, 2020, uh, they were using, uh, uh, they were using at that time, eight different carriers. And they, they aggregated it together to be, uh, to, eight, to be 800 megahertz of spectrum. And they, uh, they achieved uh, 4.1 gigahertz uh, per second. And uh, so really what, what I've learned from looking at this is that uh, the, uh, the, the high-speed networks of the future are going to be uh, carrier aggregation. Uh, there's a good chance that they're going to use a Snapdragon semiconductor. And um, the, uh, uh, I think everybody will have a different, a different way of doing it. Uh, they are different, all different ways to aggregate the spectrum. But uh, it's, uh, I think it's fascinating you know, watching these things come together and uh, seeing really where uh, where 5G is going to hit the uh, hit the road running is it's going to be millimeter wave, and uh, it's going to be 5G. It's going to be carrier aggregation, and it's going to be at least uh, 800 megahertz of spectrum uh, brought together. Well, thank you, Sharp. So once again, that's a wrap. Um, 
be sure to check out our second quarterly report of intelligence. If you want to subscribe, visit InsideTowers.com slash intelligence. Thank you for listening to Inside Towers Week in Review. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to Tower Talks. To subscribe to our podcast, our daily newsletter, or use our other industry resources, please visit InsideTowers.com. Until next time, you've been listening to Tower Talks from Inside Towers, the wireless infrastructure industries podcast.